Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We've got a great show ahead, and we hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch the Bridge Builder program right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or find for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Each week on the show, we try to bring you a great interview on some of the major issues impacting our life together. And we also answer your questions in their mailbag segment. You can email those to us at show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you a practical way to build the bridge between faith and public life. On the show today, we are blessed to have a very noted speaker and social critic talking about our built environment, the societal influences of COVID-19, and how those impact the way we live. In our mailbag segment, we're covering a question about voting from a logistics standpoint. And then finally, stick around for the bricklayer segment where we step back from a question about how to cast a vote to provide you ways to help you inform your decision on who you'll vote for. We're now joined on the line by James Howard Kunstler. He is an author, social critic, public speaker, and blogger. He's best known for his books, The Geography of Nowhere, A History of American Suburbia and Urban Development, The Long Emergency, and Too Much Magic. Welcome to the program, Mr. Kunstler. It's a pleasure to have you join us today. A pleasure to be with you. You have written a number of books, including uh, The Geography of Nowhere, which is the one I'm most familiar with. Tell us what you meant by that phrase and a little bit about that book. Well, it was about the way that we developed the American landscape, especially in the 20th century, and the rather poor choices that we made, and the effect that it had on society, economy, ecology, and uh, all the other important ingredients of civilized life. And, uh, you know, the bottom line of it all is, uh, there's a couple of bottom lines. First of all, my new theory of history, which is that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and uh, building suburbia seemed to be a mm-hmm. good idea at the time. The net result is that we've created a land of places that are not worth caring about. And that is a very, very uh, culturally dangerous outcome. There seems to be a growing recognition that place matters and that we need to create places and spaces that are more human scale. Do you see any positive developments in that regard? Is there a sense that the arguments you make in the geography of nowhere are are resonating? Oh, gosh, yes. Although things are, are developing now faster than in the previous two decades. Be, uh, my, my first book on the subject, The Geography of Nowhere, was published in 1993. And that was the same year, coincidentally, and it didn't have anything to do with my book in particularly. It was the same year that the Congress for the New Urbanism was formed, an organization aimed at reforming the habits and customs and practices of the property development industry in America. And the New Urbanists, as they styled themselves, did a magnificent job of retrieving a whole host of principles for building traditional human environments. And they codified them, and they built new models for people to see 
many, many new projects of new towns, some of which were more successful than others because they had to contend with the zoning and planning codes that were already in place, which tended to mandate a suburban sprawl outcome. But the new urbanists were uh, very successful. They built some wonderful, iconic projects, and they also managed to reform many of the urban codes and municipal planning and zoning codes that were creating so much damage in America. So there are many towns out there that have adopted those codes and have been doing a lot better. Now, playing a little devil's advocate here, Minneapolis is a city uh, with a lot of strife and turmoil right now, one of the most beautiful cities in America, to be sure, and, and doing some very positive things with regard to zoning and creating more zoning flexibility to create the types of spaces that I think you're interested in. But at the same time, the urban strife, the defunding the police, these are creating somewhat of an exodus out of the city already. And in fact, people are saying that the suburbs, which seem to be on the decline, might be back on the rise again. How would you respond to that prediction? Well, it's a very complex situation. First of all, I've got to say, I've been to Minneapolis a number of times. Uh, I don't think they've done a particularly good job there, especially the downtown, which I think is a pretty miserable, pretty miserable downtown. The situation with uh, urban planning has changed enormously in the last six months, and not just because of COVID-19, although that has accelerated a lot of trends that were already underway. The big cities in America are all going to have to contract, and this was a trend that was really in place before the virus. We are now entering an economic period in the United States, and, and probably generally in in the global economy, of resource scarcity and problems with resource supply lines and capital scarcities. We were awash in money and resources in the 20th century, despite all the wars and the problems that we had, but especially the late 20th century. And, uh, you know, that allowed our cities to assume the scale that they did, including both their skyscraper downtowns and their asteroid belts of uh, suburban sprawl. This is now going into reverse. The cities are going to have to contract. There are going to be battles over who gets to occupy the, re- the places that continue to have value, largely the old urban cores and the waterfronts. A lot of the other Parts of the city are going to lose value. There will be a tremendous loss of real estate value all over the country. And, and it's true that that is happening. However, the flight back to suburbia is going to prove to be a big mistake because suburbia is going to be uh, equally dysfunctional for somewhat different reasons. And that, ha- that has to do with the end of uh, mass motoring that we've experienced in the last 90 years the problems that we're going to have with resources and capital and the and the what is turning out to be the the extirpation of the middle class and there are a lot of interesting ways that that is working out now that are kind of paradoxical and uh, things that people didn't expect you know a lot of people including myself to some extent 25 years ago expected that the whole mass motoring question would hinge on the oil supply. And to some extent, that, that will remain true for reasons I'm, I won't go into it right now, but you, we can talk about it later. But the more important reason is that 
Americans are used to buying cars on installment loans. And in order to do that, you need to qualify for loans. And because the middle class is getting so hammered, there are fewer and fewer people who can qualify for loans to buy cars. And that situation is only going to get it worse. Now, the car industry has tried just about everything to induce people to buy cars, including, you know, seven-year loans for used cars, where, you know, after the first couple of years, uh, the value of the car is, is a lot less than the remaining payments on the loans. So there are all these dynamics in play that are going to make it difficult for suburbia to continue doing its thing. The, the bottom line is this, that Americans are probably going to have to return to living in towns, namely small towns, American small towns, Main Street towns that, that already have existing Main Street infrastructure. They're going to have to return to smaller cities that are scaled to the resource and capital realities of the future. And a lot of this will depend on whether these places have a meaningful relationship with food production, because uh, agribiz is going to get into big trouble for many of the same reasons having to do with capital scarcity, because capital is one of their biggest inputs after petroleum-based herbicides, fertilizers, and, and all the other things that they, they need to grow the crops. So the picture there is very complex, but the bottom line is consider that America will be returning to small towns, small cities. The large cities are going to have to get smaller, and, and that will be a very problematic, painful process. And suburbia is also going to have big problems. So the, if, if I get what you're saying, is the, the confluence of so many different social dynamics and challenges, uh, economic ones too, natural resource challenge, including the uh, oil-dependent economy, is going to drive people towards smaller towns that have access to and in relationship with food production that's outside of the global agribusiness phenomenon. Is that a good summation of that's what That's exactly saying? right. It's fascinating, and COVID, of course, is, seems to be just accelerating these trends. Is that well, your it's, sense it's of things? Well, it's poured gasoline on the fire, pretty much. Um, and, you know, it's done that, obviously, in, a, in places like New York and Chicago by destroying enormous, enormous numbers of small businesses. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be easy to recover from that. In fact, I, I think places like New York are not going to recover. Uh, New York has the additional problem. You know, not all, not, not all American cities are the same, obviously. And uh, they're all going to have to contract and get smaller. But uh, they will, uh, th that will happen based on a kind of a menu of forces that they will experience different combinations of. For example, one problem in New York is that it's overburdened with skyscrapers. Skyscrapers and megastructures are now becoming obsolete almost overnight because of COVID-19. But they're probably not going to be coming back from that process of obsolescence. You know, the Time Life building in, on 6th Avenue in Manhattan is the iconic skyscraper of uh, American corporate business. It was built to accommodate 8,000 people, and now 500 people are working in it. And, you know, you can imagine what will happen to, to the real estate values when these buildings no longer produce enough revenue to pay for their maintenance. And 
it has uh, effects that kind of thunder through the city's economy. When the people are no longer working in the office buildings, then all the businesses and, and restaurants in the vicinity don't get any business. And that's exactly what we're seeing in New York City. So these are kind of self-reinforcing feedback loops that are very destructive. Now, not, you know, not all American cities uh, are overburdened with skyscrapers. Places like uh, Houston and Dallas have a few skyscrapers, but you know, mostly they're composed of uh, low-rise buildings. And they have other problems. For example, m- many of the uh, cities in the Sun Belt really can't function without universal air conditioning. You know, that is air conditioning for everybody, including the poor people, the, the uh, poorly paid workers who do the landscaping and fix the pools. And, you know, if those people don't have air conditioning, you know, you're going to have a really hard problem having a modern city with uh, a civilized life in a place like Phoenix or Houston or, or Miami. And, uh, you know, you add on to that the problems with motoring and diminishing middle class and their inability to buy cars. You know, a lot of people think that, the, that electrifying the car fleet will solve the problems of, of uh, the internal combustion engine and mass motoring. But that's really a fantasy and a, and a delusion because, you know, that people still have to buy the cars one way or another. Now, I, I know people think that there'll be some kind of scheme where the entire uh, automobile system is Uberized so that you don't have to own a car anymore, but you just call, call an Uber on your cell phone and it shows up. I'm not really convinced that that's going to happen either. And uh, I don't think that that will save uh, suburban life. So, you know, there's a great deal of uh, what I call techno-narcissism out there, grandiose wishes and uh, ideas about technology rescuing us from this set of economic and cultural forces. But I think that we're going to be disappointed by that. We're speaking with James Howard Kunstler, noted social critic, author of The Geography of Nowhere, and an important commentator on trends about our built environment, the scarcity of natural resources and economics. Some of our listeners might be wondering how this relates to a Catholic radio show and and why. And uh, the simple answer is the Church is interested in anything that promotes human flourishing. And our built environment, as we're discussing today, certainly has an intersection and a way of promoting or thwarting human flourishing and uh, Mr. Kunstler's uh, comments along these lines are absolutely fascinating. When you talk about techno-narcissism, that rings specifically with Pope Francis in his uh, encyclical Laudato Si, where he talks about the technocratic mindset. A lot of what you're saying, and one of the reasons we wanted to have you on, is because it seems to me that the way your, your criticism and analysis of what's going on in our world tracks very neatly along some of the same things Pope Francis and other Catholic thinkers like Romano Guardini have said. Have you encountered these thinkers, or have they helped inform your work in any way? A little bit, not a whole lot. I know some uh, Catholic intellectuals, you know, like Philip Bess at uh, Notre Dame, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of others. But, I, you know, I'm not particularly religious myself, and I don't really follow the conversation, the religious conversation. So... You know, I have my ideas. They are what they are. You know, they're generated by somebody who is kind of outside of the uh, outside of your orbit, but they are what they are. 
Well, truth is truth wherever it's found. That's one of the, the great principles of Catholic intellectual life, so we're grateful yeah, for you. Yeah, it's something that the United States no longer appears to believe in, <laughs> uh, well, which we're, is a, a very important problem. Yeah, well, we're grateful for your uh, voice because I think you've got a lot of important things to say. So uh, as a social critic and someone who's critiquing the things as they are now, it seems that you have to approach that with a set of principles or a vision of the good that in some ways differs from the techno-narcissism and the mindset of today. So what are those principles that we can bring to promote human flourishing in a in built environment that's human scale and, and promotes uh, social and personal well-being? Well, uh, first I have to get back to my, my own principle that I started talking about, my theory of history, that things happen because they seem like a good idea at the time. You know, uh, a lot of the damage that we're living with now is a result of the developments of the 20th century. And, uh, you know, everything from universal electricity to mass motoring to uh, the gigantic production facilities that we developed, the gigantic factories and the ability to pump out uh, immense amounts of products. When we look back on that, I think, uh, uh, as we go forward in this century, I think we're going to be amazed at the grandiosity of that that what came to seem to be normal in the early 21st century and the late 20th century before it was, was really quite a, uh, an abnormal disposition of things in terms of human civilization and history. And I think going forward, you know, we're entering a period of contraction that's going to be either long-term or perhaps even permanent. I think that will eventually express itself in a population that is going down for one reason or another. And to some extent, you know, the threat is there that we may enter some kind of a dark age and, uh, you know, a less technological age, an age in which a lot of scientific understanding is lost, uh, as happened after the fall of the Roman Empire. And uh, I think we need to be prepared for that. And we need to try to rescue the really necessary technology that, that uh, will uh, afford us a, a civilized life. We're going to be entering something like a time out for technological progress, at least. And uh, that will allow us time to reflect on what we did do in the, in, during the Industrial Age, and especially the you know, the last 150 years. The short-term so, di- the short-term dynamics right now, especially in, in the last six months with regard to COVID, you see a significant decline in small businesses, many small businesses closing, but yet a concentration of economic power in the largest firms and in the tech industry. Does that fit in with your um, thesis or theory of these historical trends that are going to fuel the great unwinding of the financialized economy, or is this something that you didn't expect? How, how do you analyze you know, I, I think it's a kind of a temporary phenomenon. It's kind of a temporary blip. You know, a lot of these big companies have a lot of cushioning, shall we say, and that, that can allow them to survive some of the shocks that are going on right now. But in the end, I think what we're going to see is that the giants are going to fall and that things that operate on the smaller scale are going to be the ones that thrive and prevail. I think you can say 
that anything that is organized on the gigantic scale now is probably going to fail in one way or another at some point in the future. It's not all going to happen at the same time. But generally, everything has to, uh, everything has to downscale. All the activities that we do and all of the institutions that uh, those activities dwell in are going to have to get smaller and more nimble and that is going to be the major trend. So if you see large companies seem to be taking over for the moment, you know, consider that that's a, a momentary phenomenon. One, one last question for you, Mr. Kunstler. Where do you see faith communities and churches playing a role in both helping their members adjust to this transition in our uh, built environment and in our economy, and at the same time being better servants of the community and helping people uh, during these transitions? How can faith communities play a, an important well, role? Well, uh, we're facing a number of really serious cultural and spiritual crises. One is a signal failure of authority that is now going on in the, in the USA. And, you, you know, that's expressing itself in things like government at all levels being unable to deal with riots and looting and, and things like that. People are not missing the point to that, you know, that, that government is becoming ineffectual and that that ineffectualness is occurring hierarchically it's uh you know it's really bad at the highest level and it gets you know increasingly bad as you go down and um another thing is the failure of community in america suburbia has uh imposed so much destruction on people's sense of belonging to anything that they're yearning to belong to something and you need some institutional framework for humans to exist in a civilized way. So I personally think that we're going to see a lot of people return to churches of, of, of all kinds, being some of the last institutions that survive what's coming along now. And, you know, they have the advantage in many cases of being on the small scale in the communities that they're in. And being somewhat portable, you know, if they're in places that are not going to make it, you know, if they're in suburban places that are, have, have poor prospects for getting on in, in the decades ahead, you know, they can move to other towns. Uh, one of the important things we ought to realize is that America is full of small towns and small cities that have suffered tremendous disinvestment. And they have all of this infrastructure that's sitting there waiting to be reactivated and reused and repopulated. And I think that that's where we're going to see the action moving to. Uh, and it will surprise a lot of people. And, you know, I think that we can already see that underway here in New York State, where a lot of people have been fleeing New York City into the small towns of the Hudson River Valley, where I live. Hmm. Fascinating. We've been joined today by James Howard Kunstler, one of the most important social critics and prescient ones, certainly, in our time. He's the author of Geography, The Geography of Nowhere, The Long Emergency, and other important works. I can't recommend uh, his books and resources and writings enough. Uh, Mr. Kunstler, they can find out more about you on your website. And what is that? Just www.kunstler.com. Fascinating. Thanks for joining us on the Bridge Builder program today, and we'll be back again in a moment with our mailbag segment. 
Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag to see what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yeah, we have received an email from a Catholic voter who simply says, I'm hearing about so many different ways to cast my vote on Election Day or before Election Day. And she's just asking if we could help clarify, what are the options here in Minnesota? Well, the best place to go for election information is our election website, mncatholic.org slash election. There you can learn about resources for forming your conscience, uh, getting more idea of who your candidates are, understanding what churches and parishes can and can't do during election season. If you want specifics on voting information, like our questioner asked, the Secretary of State's website which is linked on our election page at mncatholic.org election, is a great resource. There you can identify the candidates who will be running in your district. You can see a sample ballot, um, and then you can learn about voting options and locations in your area. Certainly you can vote on election day if you feel safe and want to do that. I'll certainly be showing up on election day to do that because that's sort of a fun thing to do is uh, stand in line and cast the ballot in person. Although we do have absentee balloting and that allows you to request a ballot ahead of time and then vote. And we have early voting here as well. So you can request that ballot pretty soon. I think September 18th, don't quote me on that, is the right day. And then uh, mail that ballot in ahead of the election if you'd prefer to do it at home. But you do have to request a ballot. They're not going to send you one directly in the mail. So again, more information can be found on the Secretary of State's website. You can see a sample ballot. It's important to see a sample ballot, too, that uh, you can look at the candidates and before you vote, learn more about them in each of those districts. And typically they have websites where they talk about their issues. You can read up on them. So that's kind of a great resource, too, looking at the candidates ahead of time, getting to know them before you cast your ballot. Again, for more information, the Secretary of State's website or mncatholic.org slash election for some one-stop shopping on resources to prayerfully and prudently form your conscience and inform your vote. Wonderful. Thank you, Jason. And what do you have in this week's bricklayer segment? It seems like there might be a way to kind of build off of that before you actually cast your ballot. Yeah, so we're encouraging parishes to host a candidate forum or a candidate town hall with their state legislative candidates. So much energy and and consternation and arguing is spent worrying about the presidential election, and that's certainly important. But oftentimes we don't even know who are state representatives and state senators and, and even our local mayor, city council persons, county commissioners. We don't know those folks. And these people make very important decisions that impact us on a day-to-day level in very significant ways. But if we don't know who's representing us in these positions, we're not in relationship with them, how can we expect that they're going to be making good laws? And so they need to know what changes need to be made and how they can be best informed about issues of concern. And Catholics have an important voice and a role to play in that process. And that starts with building a relationship. First of all, uh, identifying which candidate is going to be our best representative and then building a relationship with that candidate. So these candidate town halls that we're promoting are a great way to start that process. First, connecting your candidates to a Catholic constituency, allowing them to talk to you about issues that are of concern to Catholics, ask them questions so that we can make our best uh, votes and choose the best representative in November who's going to represent us. And then hopefully after November, we still build a relationship and, and work with them to promote life and human dignity at all stages. So again, for more information about how to do that. It's one-stop shopping. We've created a whole toolkit for parishes. I'd encourage 
folks to reach out, talk to their pastor or parish staff about holding one of these town halls. They are endorsed by our state's bishops. They have no, there's no political or tax or IRS issues here. And a nonpartisan and voting information is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. We think it's a great way to start connecting legislators to a Catholic constituency in their district. More information, mncatholic.org slash townhall. Again, mncatholic.org slash townhall for those town hall kits and how to put them together. If your parish is saying they're understaffed right now and stretched too thin, why don't you volunteer to put that together? That'd be fantastic. That's all the time we have for today. Listeners, you can be part of our mailbag segment. Just send any of your questions or comments to show at mncatholic.org or connect with us on social media. Then tune in and followings to see if we cover your question. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with James Howard Kunstler. We'll be back again next week with another great guest. More of your comments and questions and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross, the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. God bless your day.